Hi there. My name is Howard, and I am a Penn State Extension Master Gardener in Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. I have the pleasure of being your host for this podcast. This is our first full regular episode of Digging for Answers with the Penn State Extension Master Gardeners of Susquehanna County. Our plan is to release a regular episode each month, normally on the first Tuesday of the month. During those busy summer months, when we receive a high volume of inputs to our county Master Gardener hotline, we may have some additional episodes. So you want to be sure to subscribe or follow on whichever podcaster site you are using to receive these episodes automatically. It makes it so much easier. You don't have to go look to see if there's a new episode being released. It gets sent to you automatically. What? You say you don't know where and how to get to our hotline to ask something about your gardening questions? Well, let's take care of that right now. Get yourself a pencil. And if you need to rewind me to listen to it again as you're getting that, that's fine. You can contact us in one of two ways. You can either call us at the Montrose Penn State Extension office at 570-666-9003. Again, that number, 570-666-9003. Or you could also email your question to susquehannamg at psu.edu. Let me spell that out for you since some of you may be listening and you're not local to Susquehanna County. So it's S-U-S-Q-U-E-H-A-N-N-A-M-G at psu.edu. The email is great if you're having a bug problem or maybe damage to some of the leaves on your veggies, you can just snap a picture of it and then attach it in the email. It really helps us out as we go to research it. All submissions to the hotline are responded to by email or telephone within a very short time. Some of those then will be submitted for the podcast so that we can share your question and the answers that the master gardener dug up for you. Again, if you've got any questions at all or comments about the podcast, you could submit it to either one of those two sources also. Hi, this is Howard back with you. And our goal is to hear your questions, dig in to find some answers for you, and then report back to you. One of the best ways to do that is through using our hotline, our Master Gardener's hotline. We talked earlier about the phone number. You can call us, you can email us. And in this first month's episode, we did receive a recent call and we're going to use that kind of as an example so that you understand how the process works. And then you'll get some ideas of what questions you may want to give us. And in the future episode, we may be having your call here. 
So this first call came in, and granted, it may not be a seasonal topic, but it's somebody that apparently is looking at planning for next spring. So we'll get her an answer. And from there, she can go get all set up. So when spring rolls around, she's ready to roll. So let's start with the call itself. Listen up. Hi, this is Julian and Brackney, and I have been wanting to plant some lily of the valley. My grandmother had lily of valley all the way around her house when I was growing up, and it reminds me very much of her. And I heard you're starting a podcast, so I'd like to ask a question to your podcast. When should I plant the lily of the valley? What kind of lily of the valley should I plant? And should I plant it from seed? How do you plant it? Um, if you could answer those questions on the podcast, that would be awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Well, there we go. So there's our call. And then what happens is that got assigned to somebody and that somebody happened to be me. And what do I do with it? Well, I start researching. And in this particular case, I used two resources. One was the Penn State Extension Master Gardener Manual. The second resource I normally go to is looking on the internet and I search for whatever my question topic is. And then you add a very important extension, EDU. And that will bring you back to responses from educational organizations. So we know it's not somebody's opinion. It's not somebody's, um, you know, their thought or what their grandmother told them. It's research-based. So in this particular case, I got a very nice hit on Cornell University. So that's the two sites that I would be reporting back to Julie when I would contact her. So Julie, let's talk a little about, about your lily of the valley question here. It is a perennial, which means that it lives more than two years. So once you plant it, you're gonna see it coming back for hopefully many, many years. When it blooms, it'll have some small white flowers, typically white and pink. There are a couple varieties that have a, a darker pink color to them. In fact, there's some that are about three to four inches taller, and we're not gonna get into all those specifics, but it does bloom in the spring and grows to a height of eight to 12 inches. As far as exposure, it likes partial shade or full shade. And the soil, very important. It needs to have moist soil, but it needs to be well-drained. Where would you plant these? What would their use be? Well, it's a shade. It can provide shade to other plants. And it's something that grows in the woodlands. So it is like a ground cover. And it has a very sweet, distinct fragrance. It really smells nice. In fact, it can even be an indoor container house plant. So that could be some reason if you could find one this time of year to get it planted, planted and have it, you know, down in some place that's going to get that little bit of shade, little bit of sunlight every day. And then again, watching those soil conditions. Here's a very important factor. It's deer resistant. Now that doesn't mean a deer will not nibble on it. It means it's resistant. If there's another tidbit that it would like to be chomping on, that's where it's going to go, but the deer tend to leave this one alone. And um, you know why? Because, you know, deer aren't necessarily stupid because 
Lily of the Valley is poisonous. It's classified as a number one on the poison scale. So it's not something that you want to be eating. If you've got animals in your house, I said you could use it as a house plant, but you need to make sure that your cats or your dogs or whatever you have in there don't go nibbling on the leaves. It's a very, very tough plant. In fact, if you're familiar with a product called Roundup or any of the other products that are basically that same type of chemical, and they're great on getting rid of weeds and things in your yard, well, it also does the same thing to plants. But for this particular plant, the Lily of the Valley, Roundup will take two or more hits to be able to knock it down. So again, it's a tough plant. Don't forget though, that poisonous, it can be fatal if it's ingested, especially again with small children because they're pretty and they may wanna nibble on it. As far as how to plant it, I believe Julie said, hey, can I plant it from a seed? You're not gonna plant it that way. Normally you're gonna go buy at least one plant. You're gonna find that moist soil in that shaded area and you're gonna go ahead and plant it. And then as it grows, it will need to propagate by division or separation. Of course, by propagate, what we mean is that we're going to get more of them. So after it flowers or in the fall, you can kind of dig down in there and you're going to find that it kind of has spread because again, remember it's a ground cover and you can pull some off and move them to another area where you would like to see these next spring and replant them or maybe even put them in the house in a container or so. So you're gonna have to buy those first ones and then deal with them after that as far as in future years. So that's our Lily of the Valley question. And again, this is kind of how the response would go. We get the question, we research it, we call them back on the phone or email them, and then we're gonna take some of those and bring it forward for this exercise. So hopefully you learned a little bit about Lily of the Valley and it is a beautiful plant. Um, I was born in May. So for me, I believe the Lily of the Valley is my birth flower for my birth month. So uh, I may even have to get some to put in just so I can remember that and the fact of we did this episode on that. So that's it for our hotline calls for the month of December. Hi, I am Howard Burkett, and I am a Penn State Extension Master Gardener in Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. And I had the pleasure to talk about, in this segment, the importance of soil testing. Now, I know it's the beginning of December, and you may think, well, darn, I'm not going to be planting anything till next spring. I'll take care of it then. But if you can get to your soil, you can take care of the testing now, get your report back, get your information, come up with a plan of action, and be ready to hit it fresh in the spring. And depending on how light of a winter we get, you might even be able to clean up some of that soil before springtime. So this section, again, is talking about soil testing. And the odds are that you and your rest of your family 
take vitamins to help your body. It's the same thing with the soil. You can add nutrients and vitamins back into the soil, but just like our own bodies, you should be only adding supplements if you know what you're lacking. So how do you do that? Well, you do that from testing the soil. During World War II, little historical fact here, over 20 million people died from starvation or malnutrition and its associated diseases. And of course, a lot of these were military deaths, but a lot of civilians too. Our plants are the same way. If they don't have the right nutrients, disease becomes easier, could be bug problems, but the bottom line is our plants, our vegetables, our flowers are not the quality that we would expect. So a soil test will tell you what nutrients your plants or could be just your front yard, what your yard needs and recommend the amount of fertilizer. And there's three very important letters to remember. N, P, K. Those are the big nutrients that you add to your soil and to your yard. The N stands for nitrogen. It encourages fast and green growth. The P stands for phosphorus. And phosphorus stimulates root development rapid growth, and quality flowers. If you think of flowers with tomatoes and squash and cucumbers, that's what gives you those flowers that the bees just love to go in and pollinate. And then of course you get the fruit that we enjoy eating. And finally, the K stands for potassium and it promotes disease resistance, strong stems, and a hardiness overall to the plant. And a good soil test is also going to tell you the pH, the current pH of your soil. Now, there's two approaches for testing your soil. One, you could go buy one of the commercial test kits and try running it. And it's going to give you some limited results as far as, oh, how close is this color? Uh, how does this measure up against the little um, chart that they give you in it? But I'll tell you, I did a study about a year and a half ago and compared the results from those test kits against the Penn State soil sample test. And I can tell you without getting into the details of it, you'll want to go with the Penn State program. And we're going to talk about how you do that here in a little bit. Now, what is it again we said we're testing for? We're looking for pH nitrogen, which is the N, the phosphorus, which is the P, and the potassium level, which is the K. Why do we want to test for pH? Well, pH is a measure of the acidity or alkalinity of a solution that is on a number on a scale, which represents a value of 7, and lower numbers indicate more acid in the soil and higher numbers increase alkalinity. So it's like a measurement. It's kind of like taking the temperature. A lot of people think, hey, everything's the same. Well, it's not because different vegetables, for example, in your vegetable garden 
have different preferred pH values. And to give you an example, asparagus is normally a pH between 6 and 8. Eggplant, 5.5 to 6.5. Potatoes, much lower, 4.8 to 6.5. Blueberry bushes, 4.5 to 5.5. And again, you can look these up, or you can always call us and ask us, but they each have a specific pH value of what they grow best at. So depending on what you're planting where, you may have different pH requirements. And if you're using raised beds, you actually can control, let's say in a four by eight area, because of the nutrients that you add, you can control the pH and you can get the maximum growth out of those vegetables. To adjust the pH, well, an easy rule of thumb is to increase the pH number. Add some powdered limestone. This time of year, as you're putting your garden beds to, be to rest, is an excellent time to get that limestone mixed in, let it set, let it winter over and everything, and then in the spring when you stir everything up, it'll be well kind of worked into everything. To decrease your pH, if it's too high, you can try adding some soil sulfur. An important thing to remember, a critical thing to remember, is that changing the pH takes time. It's not something that you're going to measure today and want to plant your beets tomorrow and be able to effectively change it. It's going to have to come over time. And then once you get a value, it's going to stay pretty much the same, and you would only have to test every, let's say, two or three years, depending on some other factors, but a good average. So we got the pH that we're going to test for. We're also going to test again for the nitrogen level. Why do plants even need nitrogen? Well, again, as we said, nitrogen is used by the plants for lots of leaf color, color and good green color. So you got growth and color. So if you see leaves that just don't look green like leaves are supposed to, so if you see leaves that don't have that bright green color, it's probably a good indication, even without a test kit, that you probably need some more nitrogen. The phosphorus level, why do they need the phosphorus? It's used to form new roots, to make seeds, to make the fruit, which is what we end up eating a lot of time, and the flowers. It also kind of helps the plants to fight any disease. The potassium, or the potash level. Why do plants need that? Because the potassium helps the plants make strong stems and helps them to grow fast, and again, helps to fight the diseases. Now, let's talk about the process of how do we do the actual testing, because I think you understand how important it is. Well, the first thing you have to do is to get a test kit. And again, we're looking at the Penn State soil sampling test kit. Well, how do you get one of those? Well, used to be before COVID, you could go into any of the extension offices ask for a test kit, and for $9, out you go. The test kit has a pre-addressed envelope, instructions, and a soil sample bag. And the kit includes the testing fee. You can't ask for a better service for $9. Because 
again, what you're going to do is you're going to take a kit for each area that you want to know your nutrient levels. So for example, when I moved into my home here in this area, I had a kit for my yard. I had one for my flower garden and I had one for my vegetable garden. And each one of those used a different test kit and I got very different results for those areas, which means my plan of action for each of those areas was slightly different. So where do you get the test kits from now? Because the extension office unfortunately is closed. Well, you could still call our hotline or email us and we can make arrangements for you to pick up a test kit at the extension office outside of the building and we can get into the particulars if you get a hold of us. So you still pay for it, you still pick it up, and then you can go home and use it. You can also go to some of the local gardening spots like for example Andre and Sons in Montrose. They have the kits in the store normally. You can go in and get it from them and then you just take the kit and go run the stuff. You can also go online to the Penn State Extension and you used to be able to get the actual kits at the um, Analytical Services Lab website and you could send the payment and get the kit back and everything but now what they've got is you can download the forms and print them out on your own per, uh, computer in your printer and again if you don't have a printer come up to the library and borrow one of ours and go to the website and print it out and then you can make your own little bags to put your soil in and then mail it off to the extension or to the main campus and everything and you'll get the test results back so again you can come to the extension office you can pick one up at uh, like Andres and Son or you can download basically your own kit over the internet now what do you do what kind of work do you have to do to get this done well it's pretty straightforward if you think of like an 8 by 10 area outside where you normally plant your uh, let's say green beans what you're going to do is you're going to go out and you're going to dig a hole about three to five inches deep and you're going to take your trowel or your little shovel and you're going to dig a little bit of dirt out and you're going to do this about 10 or 12 times in that area and that's just because you want a good sample of the test area so you don't need a lot of dirt you know get yourself like an old cottage cheese container or something just get that little bit of dirt and then you're going to bring it inside or in your garage you're going to spread this mixture out on let's say a piece of cardboard take out any rocks or roots any other foreign material and then let it dry out now somebody said oh Howard how about if I put it in the oven that'll dry it out quick I really want to get my test results no you want to let mother nature be your assistant here you do not want to dry it out by putting it in a food dehydrator or in your oven if it's someplace that the sunlight can hit it yeah let mother nature help you but be ready to wait for a couple of days for it to all to kind of dry out then you kind of mix it all up you put it in a little plastic bag you need about one cup of dried soil so again you've got these 10 spots you've pulled them you've dried them you've mixed them up and now I'm going to put them in a little Ziploc bag and then you're going to take those printed sheets out that you either printed out or that you got in the soil test kit 
you're going to package them up and you're going to send them to the address in the instructions and that's the Penn State lab. If you give them your email address you will probably get your results within a week. It'll be a, about a two to four page report and you're going to be shocked at the amount of details that they're going to give you. And they're not only going to tell you what you're missing if something is low, but they'll even give you recommendations of how much you need to add to your soil. Now it may be at an acre and you're going to have to do a little bit of math to adjust it, but you'll know where the issues are. And then a little bit later, you'll get the reports in the U.S. mail. So again, how do you get the kits? Well, get them at the extension office. You can call us on the hotline at 570-666-9003. Again, 570-666-9003. Or email us at Susquehanna mg at psu.edu if you need some additional questions answered or some help or you forget where it was that I told you to go to get the kits. Penn State has done an excellent job in doing some multimedia presentation and if you uh, are a YouTube person you can go to youtube.com and if you type in Penn State soil test you should get a link to a two-part series each one is about five minutes long that covers this whole process again it'll actually show you somebody going out digging up their samples and everything so it's pretty straightforward I can't stress enough the importance of knowing what nutrients your soil needs before you just go buy something and start dumping it in and mixing it up so that's the importance of soil sampling. If you're going to go through all the work to plant vegetable seeds in the spring, and again, remember, get your seed order in early because another byproduct of COVID is a lot of the seed companies, last year they were out early and this year they're expecting even a bigger run on the seeds. But you want the best vegetables you can get. So you've got to have moisture, you've got to have that sunlight, and you need the nutrients. So you're going to be able to take all of that and you'll be set. And I think that just about does it for us. So if you've got any questions, feel free again to call the hotline or get in touch with us. But it's been a pleasure talking to you about this very, very important topic. And if you've got questions about the results that you get in your um, feedback form, when you get it back from Penn State, again, you can contact us and let us know. So. On to our next topic. Thanks. Hey, just a before I go, I quick remember this is please make sure that you put enough postage on the package when you send it out. One stamp isn't going to get it there. So check the weight out. Make sure you got the correct postage. There you go. Hi, this is Howard, and I am a Penn State Extension Master Gardener in Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. And as I start my holiday shopping, I thought I'd share with you a great idea for a gift for anyone that you know 
that has an interest in gardening. And, you know, if you've been good this year, maybe you need to pick one of these up for yourself. And what I'm talking about is the Penn State Extension Master Gardener Manual. This is the same book, the same manual, that those individuals that decide that they would like to become a master gardener in the state of Pennsylvania, they get the book, they go through the class, and it's the first reference point that we use when we're researching any questions that you may have coming to me as a master gardener. It is a national award winner by the American Society of Horticulture Science, and this is the Renew Revised Edition of the manual. It's a permanent fixture in every Master Gardener's library. Comes with nearly 600 full-color photographs and a very extensive index. There's over 800 pages in this hardback book. It is set for beginners to advanced gardeners. So anybody can pick it up and let's say, gee, I wonder how I grow green beans. And it'll walk you through all the issues, the pests, the diseases, how to plant. Everything that you need to know about green beans is going to be in there. Also, lots of landscaping information and a variety of other topics. So think about surprising this holiday season, your favorite gardener, with this comprehensive manual. How do you get it? Well, it's $75. You order it from Penn State at extension.psu.edu. Again, go to the website extension.psu.edu and search for the Master Gardener Manual. Again, the cost is $75, but let me tell you, that is well worth it compared to some of the other gardening books that you would have to collect to have this one-stop answer to those gardening questions. You want to make sure that you order by the 14th of December to assure Christmas delivery. So, with that, I'm going to go take a look at ordering some myself. Hello everyone, this is Lori Wallace and I am a Master Gardener in Susquehanna County and I would like to introduce our speaker today who is going to talk about Christmas trees, tree selection, processing, the different species, tree care, and lots more. Uh, so let me introduce to you Jim Kessler. Hi Jim, would you like to uh, introduce yourself a bit and tell us about your background? Yeah, thanks, Laurie. Well, the name is Jim Kessler, and my background has been in forestry. I was a service forester for the Pennsylvania Bureau of Forestry, and my office was in Montrose. So I served Susquehanna, Wyoming County. I did that for 40 some years. I'm also a master gardener, been working with the master gardener program for 10 years or more. And I'm also the owner of a, a Christmas tree farm on Franklin Hill. And I've been planting trees for, for the last 40 years here, planting, cutting, processing, learning everything I can about growing Christmas trees and the 
successes and the challenges involved with that. It sounds like an easy enough thing to do. You just plant, put a couple of trees in the ground and in a couple of years, you go out and cut them down and you make a million bucks. Well, that doesn't quite work that way, but I keep learning and I think I keep getting better trees. And sooner or later, I think I'll have this figured out until the next change comes along. And changes include things like insects and diseases and weather conditions and deer and mice and rabbits. And well, there's always a new twist in the situation somewhere along the line. This year, one of the biggest changes has been the COVID situation. And while everybody else was concerned about uh, what can you do in the house all day long for the last six months, well, I did uh, all my worrying out in the field and I just went about my regular business and uh, <clears throat> was still planting and shearing and mowing and spraying and fertilizing and fixing and trying to keep everything going. So COVID really didn't affect me too seriously. Uh, at least not in the, the professional stage. So we're, we're going to make some changes to the farm here uh, come harvest season. And harvest season will start the day after Thanksgiving. And we have a choose and cut farm. So that means people come here. Uh, they have an idea what kind of tree they, they're looking for, size, the shape, the color, the texture. What did they have last year? What did they have as a kid growing up? What are their memories and their traditions? So people have some kind of a preconceived notion of what a Christmas tree should look like, but all of us have a different notion and that's for sure. So we're going to be changing our equipment arrangement this year to keep a more steady flow of people and incoming people will not mix with outgoing people near as readily. <clears throat> so we're going to have a different kind of traffic flow and setup of equipment. We're going to require masks. We encourage social distancing. We're going to sanitize the equipment that are that's common equipment, things such as hand saws, which we provide and so they will be sanitized at least daily. And the target is to sanitize between each customer. We have tree carts and people can use the cart to bring their tree from the field back to the house or to their vehicle. So those tree carts would have common touch areas, the handle. <clears throat> so we need to sanitize those things. We're going to have the foot traffic uh, rearranged slightly to encourage people to understand how we want the traffic to flow with minimal interaction between customers. So that uh, one set of one family does not intermingle with the next family too much. We want to reduce that because that's always a big issue. A lot of people come here and they haven't seen their, their friends or their neighbors since about this time last year, and they're anxious to talk to people. So we want to minimize that as much as is practical. <clears throat> so 
we're, we're, we're changing to keep people as safe. Safety is going to be paramount. So tell us a little bit about your processing uh, of the Christmas trees. Okay. We're, we're going to be trying to streamline the process. That is, when people come here, we have saws and carts available and a map with some simple instructions so that people can come to the, the house and see what is expected of them and what are the opportunities. If you haven't been here before, where do you start? What do you do? Where do you go? So they'll come to, toward the house and we will have the maps and the signs and the instructions all posted. Then they would take the saw, go out to the field, find a tree, take a cart if they care to, so that they can keep the tree out of the mud or out of the snow or out of the grass and keep it as clean as possible and bring it back to the house. Once they get here, uh, we would shake any brown stuff out of the tree, that is uh, maple leaves or old pine needles or any kind of foreign material. We'll shake the tree on our shaker. If they have a stand straight tree stand that has a pin in it, they need to have their tree grilled and we will do that. We have a couple of balers so we can put some netting around the tree to keep the tree, make the tree a smaller size just for transportation and handling. Then the people will, the customer will put this tree uh, on his vehicle and uh, we, we would have the string twine, bale string to tie the tree onto the vehicle if, if necessary, or if you have a truck, that's not necessary. So we want to process that as quickly and as efficiently as we can to keep everything moving smoothly. So that, that's the process. We'll, we'll provide the equipment, the drillers, the balers, the shakers, the carts, the saws, and we do that. There's no charge for any of that. That's just to help make the whole process move easier and more smoothly. All right. How can you tell us now about all the different species that you have on your property and, and their characteristics? Well, we have quite a selection of trees. Our most popular the last couple of years has been blue spruce, Douglas fir, and Canaan fir. We did have, we've got a few Fraser fir left over from a previous patch that is being replanted. We have the pines, Scotch pine and white pine. And there's a lot of difference between species such as the, the sharpness. The, uh, the, the sharp needles would be the blue spruce. If you have a cat that likes to climb trees I've never known a cat to climb up into a blue spruce. They are sharp. They'll keep the cat out or the kids. If the kids like to play with the ornaments, maybe you want to stay away from that. Maybe you want to put an extra bonus on that feature. The opposite end of the spectrum then, is the softest tree is the white pine. They just invite you to touch. They are soft, but the other, the, the downside of the white pine is that they have very soft limbs, very flexible, and they don't hold up well with heavy ornaments. 
but that can be fixed by putting the lights on. When you put a string of electric lights on, you put the lights on from bottom to top and go up and down the tree rather than go around the tree so that the light string itself adds the strength to the branches. And once you have the branches reinforced, then you can put any kind of ornaments on you want. But that's a limitation. They make a beautiful tree and they're certainly nice to touch, but some people want something with a stiffer branch. So those are the differences. Some uh, trees retain their needles better, especially the firs. Fraser fir is uh, noted for its best needle retention, but the Canaan fir and balsam fir, they also hold up very well and we've had re real good reports from them. So the, the, the list of species that we have includes white fir, Korean fir, Douglas, balsam, Canaan, Fraser firs, Scotch and white pine, blue spruce and Norway spruce. Norway is, has always been a good uh, popular tree for us, but we're kind of at a low spot with our Norways right now. We have more in the ground, so we'll have more available in a couple of the coming years. But those are, we've got a good choice of whatever you're looking for. We, we probably got it right here. Can you tell us a little aftercare, tree care, once they bring it home? Yeah, good point. <clears throat> the most important thing is water. If you get a, a fresh cut tree, you pick one up here at the farm and you take it home and you put it up, uh, you're, you're all ready to go. If you get a tree from uh, a lot someplace and it has been cut for a few days or weeks or some places they're even cut a month uh, earlier than what you you get it. So if you're going to buy one off of a lot someplace, it's a good idea to cut the end of it off, cut even just a half an inch off the end of the stump so that the, there is fresh cells that will take up the water and the tree will keep taking water for its life. Most of the water will be taken up the first 24 or 48 hours. And if you're not sure how long the tree has been cut, if you got it off of a lot, check the stump. And if you see sap sealed over the stump, once the sap forms over the stump, then it no longer takes up water at that place. So if there's sap all over the whole stump, then you know it's not gonna take up any water at all. So you cut the a half or an inch off the base of the stump and now you have all fresh new cells that are going to be able to take up water again. So regardless of where you get your tree, it's important to keep it in water. There are a lot of products on the market that claim to extend needle retention time. And the National Christmas Tree Association has done a lot of work testing those products. And they have found some that are as good as water but they've not found anything that's any better than water. There are store-bought remedies. There are homemade concoctions. I've heard of such things as Clorox and Sprite or 7-Up, different kinds of soda, bleach, all kinds of things that people swear are good. And 
the main thing that the, the National Association testing has showed us is that if you put something in the water, you're more likely to remember to put it in the water and therefore you're going to look at the water level and add water. So the product itself is irrelevant, not helpful, but anything that will help remember to, to put water in the holder, that's important. And some stands don't hold much water. Uh, I've seen stands that hold about a pint of water and stump, and the stump takes up most of the volume. So there's not much water in there and that will be gone the first night. And then the next day, the sap starts to ooze out and starts to seal the stump again. And that reduces your water retention or uptake ability from that point on. So whatever you do, the most important thing is provide water. Okay, can you uh, explain to us um, why real, real trees are, or versus artificial trees? A lot of people think that uh, trees, Christmas trees come from the forest and they should save the forest and not cut a real tree. And that's exactly the opposite end of what really happens. Most Christmas trees, like 98% of them, do not come from the forest. They grow on farms, on, on Christmas tree farms, where they are grown and planted for the specific purpose of being harvested for Christmas trees. And when they are harvested, then they can again be replanted. But uh, you look at the habitat where a fake tree comes from, probably oil and metal or plastic, and probably in some oil well in, in a factory in China. Whereas the, the real tree comes from a local farm and you look at what kind of setting it is, it's probably green. The trees help control erosion. In Susquehanna County, we have a lot of abandoned farms that just grow up to weeds but a Christmas tree farm keeps the, the grass cut. So there's a lot of wildlife, there's a lot of rabbits, coyotes, deer, turkeys, all kinds of songbirds nesting in the Christmas trees. And by the way, uh, we usually have quite a few customers who get their tree back to the house and they say, oh, they all, there's a, a bird nest in there. And some people get concerned about the cutting the nest that the, the tree that the nest was in. And we know that that's not a, a concern at all because the nesting season for songbirds is in the spring. So by the time Christmas gets here, the, those young birds are long gone and the nest has been abandoned. Birds do not reuse nests. So once the, the nest is done, it is finished. And uh, the saying is that if you got a tree with a bird nest in it, that's a good luck tree. So yeah, we, we like to take care of our uh, trees. We keep them growing, we keep them healthy. Uh, they enhance the habitat. They take carbon out of the air. We know that we, we learned in third grade that uh, in order for photosynthesis, you need carbon dioxide and water and sunlight. So that carbon dioxide is taking all the carbon out of the air and is a good storage facility 
to prevent uh, carbon pollution on, on our planet. So it's just one little bit, but we, it does help to our, our atmosphere, our ecology, if we grow natural trees. And the nice thing about natural trees is you can recycle them and you can buy local and support your local uh, farmers and economy. You bet. And we always want to keep our, our local people in, in business. And that way we know where our tree comes from. We know its background and, and we know uh, a little bit more about how it's produced. If you try and trace that on a fake tree, it's not a very pretty picture. It's all mass production in a factory someplace. So uh, I, give us a my, couple ideas on how to recycle a Christmas tree. Uh, sure. Uh, in Susquehanna County, we have a lot of rural uh, agricultural land. So it, it can go out in the backyard. Uh, it's good to make for wildlife habitat. If you have a bird feeder, near your house, put the Christmas tree near the bird feeder. And when the birds, when the chickadees come in and get a, a sunflower seed, they'll take it away from the feeder. And if they have a little protection, an evergreen tree, bush, uh, something to where they're safe to eat that seed, it makes for good wildlife cover. If you have a pond, it makes good fish habitat. It gives a place for the young fish, the, the fry, to hide from the bigger fish so that the young fish can get, it can grow safely. We can put it out along a fence row for other wildlife habitat, rabbits and other small animals will usually find some kind of protection under a collection of old trees. One tree doesn't provide a whole lot of habitat for, for a rabbit, but if you have a cluster of trees, like from your neighbors and a few extra people put, put a half a dozen trees together so that they can and keep them up off the ground somewhat. And undoubtedly, you're going to have some other kind of animals using your used Christmas tree. Some people talk about using them for firewood, and that's not necessarily a good idea. It does, they do tend to flare up and make things very hot. So if you put it in a fireplace, uh, you're going to have a flash for a, a few minutes, and then it's going to go out. So I, I don't necessarily use, recommend using them for firewood, uh, unless you have an outside burner or someplace. But they can be chipped and used for mulch in flower beds and landscaping type setting. So yep, there's a lot of good uses for a Christmas tree after Christmas. And we've had people say that they've had their tree up for, they undecorate it for Valentine's Day and put hearts on it. And I've had people tell me the other day that they kept their tree up till Easter and they decorated it for Easter. So that's when you have trees that really hold their needles well, and not all trees will do that. But if you get the right tree and you take good care of it, you keep the house cool, keep it away from heat source. Trees can last a, a good long time. Well, thank you, Jim. Very 
very interesting. And we're just about out of time right now. Um, I'd like to say that if anyone has questions about trees, please do contact the Susquehanna Master Gardeners and I'm sure be the one answering your questions. My final note is just to remind people that it's Christmas, keep it real. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Hi there, this is Nancy Burkett. I am a Penn State Extension Master Gardener in Susquehanna County, Pennsylvania. Tis the season to think about decorating, and one of our traditional plants at this holiday is a poinsettia. I have a few helpful hints when selecting a healthy plant at the store. So when you get there, look for plants with dark green leaves. And you want to check by lifting them up and peek underneath and make sure you don't see any signs of insects. Then check also to make sure there's not a lot of wilted, damaged, or missing leaves. Then touch the soil. It, you don't want a plant that has really dry soil or really wet soil. Then you're going to pull down the foil or paper that happens to be around the base of the plant and look for strong, stiff, healthy stems. Then look at the plant in total. It should be approximately two times larger than the pot that it's in. So now you've picked out the perfect poinsettia. So I need to take it out to my car. Make sure that if it's below 50 out there, that you have your plant covered with a loose fitting bag. Or even if it's a little windy, make sure you have a nice loose fitting bag. And do not leave it in your car too long because if it's a really cold day, you don't want to damage your plant. Once you get it home, you're going to remove that sleeve that's made out of foil or paper. You want to place it somewhere in your house where the temperature remains pretty consistent, between 68 to 7 degrees. So I don't want it too hot or too cold, and you don't want it in a drafty area either. Then when the soil starts to feel a little dry is when you want to water it. And if you happen to overwater it, don't let it sit in water because that'll rot the roots. Now, I have some interesting facts about our poinsettias. They actually grow in Mexico. And they're not the smaller plants that we think of. They're lanky shrubs. And Joel Robert Poinsett, a botanist, physician and our first U.S. ambassador to Mexico introduced the poinsettia to the United States in 1828. Then Paul X Sr. in the early 1900s sold it from his farm stand in Hollywood. Now his son Paul Jr. he started selective breeding the plants. He wanted ones that would withstand shipping that lasted longer and produce lots of blooms. And on the topic of blooms, the actual flower of the poinsettia 
are very tiny green and yellow parts that you'll find in the center of what you think is the flower. And those red or pink leaves are actually not leaves, but they're modified leaves or bracts. So the flower themselves are really small. So check out the flower parts of that plant. And Paul himself developed many different types of poinsettias. Today, there's about a hundred different varieties. Paul Jr. is also known or given credit for introducing it to the United States all over, not just in California. And how he did this is he donated plants to fashion shoots at the holidays and to holiday specials. For those of you that are a little older like I am, to the Bob Hope Christmas special and to the Tonight Show. Also, it's a myth that poinsettias are poisonous. They will not hurt you. They won't hurt your children, your puppies, or your kittens. If they eat a lot of leaves, they may have some stomach discomfort, but they're not going to kill them. Now, I have this nice poinsettia. Christmas is over. What should I do with it? Well, you have two options. The first option is throw it away. But if you're going to choose to throw it away, please don't put it in your garbage. Please compost it. And if you don't have a compost, give it to someone that does have a compost. Or the second option, keep it as a houseplant. It is difficult to get them to rebloom for your next holiday season, but it can be done. I've never tried to rebloom mine. I've had one for two summers, so this is my third Christmas season. It's a very healthy, beautiful green plant. But if you would like to try to get yours to rebloom, you're going to keep it through the spring. And then about late March, early April, you want to cut it back to four to eight inches above the soil. You're going to fertilize it about every two weeks with a common 10-10-10 fertilizer. When the nighttime temperatures reaches above 50 consistently, so no threat of frost, you can take your poinsettia outside. Place it in partial shade. You do not plant it in the ground. Now that's where I made a mistake because my last two summers, I put mine in the ground. So next year, I'm gonna to try to just put mine in a larger pot because uh, as it grows, you wanna repot them. So I'm gonna repot it and put it outside and then I'm gonna see if I can get it to rebloom. About June or July, to keep your plant nice and bushy, you wanna do some pruning. And you can prune it again if it continues to grow a lot, but after September 1st, do not prune it. And here comes that magic 50 degrees again. When the temperature goes below 50 degrees, you want to bring your plant inside, keep it in a nice sunny window, um, make sure you continue to water it, you can continue to give it fertilizer, and then around October 1st, this is when the tricky start part starts. You need to put it in total darkness for 14 hours a day. So you want to put it in a closet that's really dark 
or you could put it in a darker room with a box over it. And then after that, approximately 14 hours, you want to take it out of the dark and you're going to put it back in a sunny window and you're going to continue to water it and fertilize it. As soon as you notice it to start turning colors, you want to, and check for little blooms, you want to stop fertilizing it, but continue watering it. So you're going to, every day, make sure you get 14 hours of dark, and then bring it out into the sunshine. So you're going to do that until you start to see that color change. And that should happen about mid-December. Now, if you forget, even one day, unfortunately, it resets the clock. So you want the colorful uh, modified leaves by that mid-December. So you got to make sure every day, 14 hours approximately darkness, and then in the sunshine. So mid-December, when you get to the color that you want it, you can bring it out and leave it out. Actually, December 12th is National Poinsettia Day. I hope this presentation helps when choosing a healthy poinsettia. Have a wonderful holiday season. We said in our teaser episode that... Uh, just so that you'll remember us and so that you'll walk away with a smile, we were going to add a little gardening joke at the end of each episode. So let's see what my assistant has for us today. Alexa, tell me a gardening joke. I wonder why there isn't an opera about onions. There wouldn't be a dry eye in the house. Did you get that? I wonder why there isn't an opera about onions. There wouldn't be a dry eye in the house. And I hear something in the background saying that that's cuckoo. All right, see you next time. <laughs>